We're coming back to the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, please find one and and turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 18 through 27. And as you're turning there, I want to begin. Nima Alzadiah is from a people group that pride themselves on being 100% Muslim. To belong to Nima's people group is to be Muslim. Nima's personal identity and and familial honor and relational standing and social status all intertwined with Islam. Simply put, if Nima ever leaves the Muslim faith, he would be risking his life. If his family would, would find out that he's left the Muslim faith, he would be putting himself in danger with the possibility of having his throat slit without question, without hesitation. Now imagine you're having a conversation with Nima about Jesus. And you begin to tell him about how God loves him so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for his sins as his savior. And as you talk with Nima, his heart begins to soften with the message, a message that is different than what he grew up with in Iran and through the teaching of Islam. He's being softened. But at the same time, fear is welling up inside of him, fear of leaving his Muslim roots. He considers what it might cost for him to leave the Muslim faith and to follow Jesus Christ. And with trepidation, he asks, how do I become a Christian? Friend, you have two options to respond. You could tell him how easy it is to become a Christian. If only Nima simply agrees with certain truths and repeats a prayer after you, he can be saved. And you can be quick and short and... You say that's all it takes. Your second option is to tell Nima the truth, the whole truth. You tell him that in the gospel, God is calling him to die. To die to his life, to die to his family, to die to his friends, to die to his worldly future. And in him dying, he will live to live with Jesus, to to live as part of this global family that includes every tribe, every tongue, every race, to live with friends who span every age, to live in a future where joy will last forever. To share the truth with Nima, we cannot sugarcoat and gloss over the consequences of following Christ. Nima is not a fictional character. He is real. He lives in Iran today. He was brought to light through a Gospel Coalition article this week about the massive growth of the church in Iran. I want to highlight just one uh, portion of the story from Paul Crabtree, who gave some stats about this. He says, about 20 years ago, the number of Christian converts from a Muslim background was between 5,000 and 10,000 people. And today, that's between 800,000 to 1 million people. According to Operation World, Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. But in Iran, it's incredibly dangerous to leave Islam and embrace Christ. To follow Jesus means you are daily dying to self with the real, ever-present reality that you will someday die physically. If you, born into a Muslim family, turn from Islam to Christianity, it's a strong possibility of a literal death sentence. Nima's story is a clear reminder that the initial call to Christ is an inevitable call to die. That's always been the call to follow Jesus. 
From the very beginning, when Jesus stood on the boat and called Peter to follow him, he bid him to abandon his life on earth and to find his true life in Jesus. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. And Jesus says to us this morning in our passage in Luke, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus would say over and over again, the call to follow him was a call to death to ourselves. In a world where everything revolves around self, protect yourself, promote yourself, preserve yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, Jesus says to us this morning, deny yourself and come and follow me. Friends, this is the message of Christianity. If you believe that you can come to Jesus and stay the same and live however you please, you've been told a lie. That's not the call of Christ. And so here is the main idea. Here's the main thrust for this passage this morning. Jesus gives the surprising explanation that he will suffer, die, and be raised again, showing us that he came not to gain worldly prestige, but as a suffering servant. See, friends, following Jesus is a summons to, uh, of death to self, but gives way to glory in the kingdom. And the climax of the sermon is really in this text of this, of this whole passage, the climax of, of what's really this book's about is, is in these verses, verses 23 through 26, of which we'll spend a lot of time. But here's the outline. It should be on the screen. Um, there's the three points that we're going to cover this morning. A surprising confession, a surprising plan, and a surprising call. So look with me at your Bibles, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27, as we read. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So first is the surprising confession. We talked about this briefly last week. As we looked last week, Jesus finishes one of the most public miracles of feeding the 5,000 and then he heads out to pray. The feeding of the 5,000 was one of the most widely known miracles besides the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's the only miracle mentioned in each of the four Gospels. Everyone knew about this. The, world, the word had, had spread and Jesus was becoming famous and expectations were becoming high. And what does Jesus do next in the text? It says he gets away to pray. And I'm struck at how many times we read of Jesus getting alone to pray with the Father. He loves to pray with the Father. He loves to spend time with him. You can see him later praying in verse 28 of this chapter. Prayer was vital for Jesus. And Luke says now here in verse 18, now it happened that he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. So either they went with him or they found him, and Jesus takes this opportunity to 
to pull his disciples that we talked about last week. He, he asked them who, who, who the crowds say that he is. But then he turns the question in on them. Who, who do you say I am? And it's the amazing confession of Peter. It's a crucial moment in this gospel because it's the very moment that things begin to change. The story moves from this unknown man, Jesus, to a very public man with a very public ministry. And in this chapter, we enter the final phase of Jesus' ministry on earth. And it's, it's now the end game. There will be no turning back. Jesus is heading towards the cross. So, so when the question is given to the disciples, Peter responds about who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ of God. Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Peter's right. In the other Gospels, we read of Jesus' affirmation of this and acknowledging that it was the Spirit that made it clear to Peter. And it's, it's always the Holy Spirit that teaches us who God is. Friend, perhaps you logged on, you just stumbled onto our service this morning, or you, or you intended to join us, and, and with the snow, you had to stay home. But it's really one of the most important questions that you'll answer this morning is, who is Jesus? Do you only think of him as a religious teacher? He, he was a teacher, but he was much more than that. Perhaps you think that maybe he was really a good prophet. But can a prophet forgive sin? There was none that could do and say what Jesus would do and say. And, and friend, you've come into the service, you, you've, you've, you've logged on and you've come under the wrath of God. That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And there's only one way to escape the wrath of a holy God, and that's for another to take the wrath in your place. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We, we can't stand before God. Because of our continued sin, we are under judgment unless another one stands in our place. And that one is Jesus. He came to take God's wrath, to take our punishment for our sins. He came as a perfect and willing substitute for us to die in our place. And friend, you came today for a reason. You're watching at home for a reason. And understand this, that God sent his son to take your place, to take away your sin and to give you Christ's righteousness and the record of your wrongdoing is gone. I read this week of an Englishman years ago who bought a Royals Royce because it had been advertised that this was a car that could never, ever break down. And so he bought it, even with the hefty price tag, and began to drive it, and he loved it. But guess what happened? One day while driving a long way from home, not, not even close to a nearby city, his car broke down. And so he calls Rolls Royce and he says, hey, you know this car that you said would never break down? Guess what? It broke down. And immediately Rolls Royce sends out a mechanic via helicopter to the location where he is. And within a short period of time, his car's fixed and he's on his way. And so naturally the man thinks, I'm going to get a bill for this. Rolls Royce is going to send me a bill and he waits a month and then two months and nothing comes. And so he calls and says, I'd like to pay the bill for my auto repairs so that I, can, that I can get that off my plate, off my conscience. And do you know what they say to him on the phone? Sir, we're deeply sorry, but we have absolutely no record of anything ever gone wrong with your car. And consider the wonder, friends, for all who come to Jesus Christ and receive Christ's righteousness and a new life 
the God of the universe looks at you and says, I have, I have absolutely no record of anything gone wrong in your life. Jesus came to redeem you, to make you new, to take your sin, to take the wrath that was due you. And you came this morning in greater need of a physical healing or, or new friends or a new job or even money to pay bills. Your, your greatest need is for your sins to be forgiven. And so, friend, turn from your sin of trusting in yourself and turn to trust in Christ alone. Well, after Peter's confession here in this passage, Jesus says in verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. Jesus is forbidding them to tell anyone. You know, most Jews at that time, including his disciples, packed the wrong freight into the term Messiah. The people wanted to make Jesus their, their political king. That's what it meant, Messiah. That's why Herod was nervous and asking questions about Jesus in verse 9 earlier in the chapter. And Jesus here is stopping the spread of his identity because for them and for many others, Jesus' identity of Messiah was tied so closely to their view of politics, to their view of earthly power. And they equated the Messiah with a new political regime, a champion who would fight for the little guy, who would overthrow Rome in their persecution. Jesus wants to squash that now. That's not why he came to earth. He, he wanted to redefine what a Messiah was. And he would tie it to Isaiah 53 that I read at the beginning of the service. They wanted a Messiah to march into Rome so they could crown him and give him an earthly robe and a scepter. But that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to, to wow the crowds so that they would vote for him. He didn't come to give rights and privileges for a nation. He didn't come to end wars and bring peace to earth. No, he came the first time to earth to die and to satisfy God's wrath towards our sin. And so that leads then to the second point of this surprising plan. How, how is Jesus going to do this? Look at verse 22. It says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This would be sudden to hear this from Jesus' lips. He just confirmed that he is in fact the Messiah that he's come to rescue them, that they'll be saved, but not by destroying the empire and replacing the king. They'll be saved through death. Never before this moment had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. There were mysterious prophecies in the Old Testament of a servant of the Lord who would suffer, but, but they didn't connect the dots with the, with the coming Messiah. The notion that the Messiah would suffer would make no sense to these men because the Messiah in their minds would, would come to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in their world. And how can you do that if you're going to die? See, see it would, to them, seem so strange for Jesus to say this. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. The Son of Man must suffer. The word must means that God had planned it this way from the beginning. Jesus was not delivered up to Pilate and crucified because he couldn't stop it, like he couldn't crush his enemies with a word. His death was a result of the eternal counsels of the Trinity. God had planned for this to happen. And nothing in their wildest imagination could have been farther from their minds than the death 
of the Messiah. Jesus, you're going you're gonna to die? See, they couldn't wrap their minds around this. And that word must, we need to pay attention when you come across the word must. The word must modifies everything in that sentence, meaning everything after suffering is a necessity. Jesus must suffer. He must be rejected. He must be killed. He must rise on the third day. Jesus wasn't simply saying, I came to die, but he's saying, I have to die. The only way God can pardon us and not judge us in our sins is to go to the cross and absorb it into himself. And so Jesus says, I must suffer. I must be killed. And everything that Jesus said that would happen did happen. He would suffer. He, he would be rejected and he'd be killed on a cross that he would carry himself. And, and it would really happen a year later than the time that he's teaching them now. He would die, but he would also rise again. That really happened too. And we celebrate that each and every week that we are able to gather together on Sundays, the first day of the week, and we come and to worship and remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he rose from the dead on a Sunday. So today, friends, today is the Lord's day. He rose from the dead on a Sunday. It's his day, the Lord's day, as we read in Revelation 1. And so you're home this morning. I, I recognize that. Some of you are still in pajamas because there's a snowstorm and you're watching the service. But you woke up this morning to watch our service on the Lord's day. It's his day. Because of this day many, many years ago, Jesus conquering the grave. And so every Sunday, we look forward to next Sunday, Lord willing, to, to gather again on Resurrection Sunday every week. Jesus would go to the cross. And he says here in this passage that the cross would come for them. It would come for us. See, the Lord has a different perspective than they. He saw everything from heaven's point of view. He saw a world in space invaded and held by Satan and his hosts. The war was already being waged in the unseen world. He knew he would conquer Satan, but it would go through a cross. Way back in chapter 4, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, Satan wants him to gain political power right now. And Jesus said then, and Jesus says now, there's no crown without a cross. There will be suffering, then glory. That's what Jesus teaches, and now he shocks them with the third and final surprise here. A surprising call. It says in verse 23, look there in your Bible. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, since I am a king on a cross, if you want to follow me, you must go to a cross. You must lose your life. What does it mean to lose your life? What does it mean to take up your cross daily? Anyone who follows after Jesus must embrace suffering before you will embrace glory. You notice in verse 23 who he's talking to, who's, who, who the all, he looks as he said to all. The all here is a large crowd that have been gathering to hear Jesus preach and teach. In Mark 8, 
verse 34, we get a fuller picture of this crowd. Mark says, or at least who the, who the all is. Mark says, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. So it's not just his disciples. It's not just the 12. It's the whole group. So it's just not directed to the select few. They're not the super Christians who are called to lay everything down to follow Jesus. No, this is directed to all. The crowd, those are looking on with curiosity, the hearers, the seekers, the, the masses. He's talking to everyone. He's talking to us. So that's how we need to interpret his words. We, we need to listen to these words for ourselves. And we need to listen as a church family, corporately. Jesus is calling us to deny ourselves and to follow him. And he says in verse 23, If, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. They knew, these, these listeners, these guys, the crowd and the twelve, knew what the cross was. They lived in Roman-occupied Israel long enough to know what it meant to take up a cross. To die on a cross meant to die despised and rejected by man. Every rebel condemned to crucifixion was compelled to carry their cross, or at least the cross beam, to the scene of their execution. Jesus would die on a cross. Those words don't seem to grab us like they would have to the original listeners. There's a cross in our, in our, in our area where we worship here, right behind me, hanging on the wall, and that symbol means something. I, I, I feel like it means something less than what it would have to John or Peter when Jesus spoke these words. It's lost its impact on us. In Jesus' day, a cross was akin to a lynch mob's noose and its capacity to create a visceral dread in those who saw it. It was a symbol of gruesome death and a horrific suffering. If you grew up in the South as a black person, a noose takes on a whole new meaning. If you were a Jew living in Nazi Germany, a swastika wasn't a pleasant symbol. These symbols affect people. We should take notice of this. A cross, a noose, a swastika, all represent horror and death. It causes us to shudder. And Jesus turns the symbol of death, the cross, and points it to those that would desire to follow him. Do you want to follow me, Jesus says? You must deny yourself and take up your cross daily. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, writes, to deny ourselves is to behave toward ourselves as Peter did towards Jesus when he denied him three times. The verb that is used is the same. He disowned him, repudiated him, turned his back on him. Self-denial is not denying ourselves luxuries such as chocolates, cakes, cigarettes, and cocktails, though it may include these. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed rights to go our own way. To deny ourselves is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. And then Stott finishes with this. He says, no picture could be more graphic than that. An actual taking of a hammer and nails to fasten our slippery, fallen nature to the cross and thus do it to death. Jesus says we're to do this daily. David Gooding wrote, anyone who was thinking of following Jesus was warned that it would mean, even after the resurrection, denying himself and taking up his cross daily, bearing the same hostility from the world that Christ bore, and sharing the shame and reproach of being a follower of a Christ who had been crucified. 
Sometimes we, we can get confused on what it means to bear a cross. We, we, we say, well, I have arthritis or poor grades or I have wayward kids or a loveless marriage. And although these are real and, and hurtful, they're not crosses that we bear. Bearing a cross is dying to our selfish way of living. And discipleship, following Jesus, being a Christian, requires a cross. And we, we, we can't let social media define what it means to follow Jesus. Sharing a, a meme is not following Jesus. If following Christ was only uh, easy as clicking a button and sharing a post, then, then everyone would do it. It wouldn't cost anything. But following Christ is more than superficial acknowledgement. Jesus says in verse 24, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The deliberately chosen Greek word for life here is psyche, from which we get the word psychology. It denotes your identity, your personality, your selfhood, what, what makes you distinct. And Jesus is not saying, I want you to lose your sense of being an individual self. That, no, that's the teaching of Eastern philosophy. No, Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on gaining things in the world. His exact words in verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Friends, do you, do you struggle with worldly ambition? You need to take heed of what Jesus says in these verses. There's a lot of ambition in this world, a lot to pursue of things in this world. There are a lot of things that you can acquire in this world. You can acquire fame and fortune and strength and power and respect and even love. Do you really believe that you can gain the whole world and all that it has to offer? You can't. And you will lose your soul. And friend, there is nothing in this world that is worth your soul. Jesus says this way of life will never work. If you, if you gain the whole world, he says, it won't be big enough or bright enough to cover up the stain of an insignificance. You will always come up short. No matter how many of these things you gain, it's, it's never enough to make you sure of who you are. You know, I watched last week, I know some of you also, Tom Brady winning his seventh Super Bowl, and he is the GOAT. That's what they call him, right? The, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And you can debate all these things about sports, whatever. But even in his fantastic football career, if he never follows Christ, it won't be enough. He can strive to build his identity in football and have a fabulous career. He can be a good husband and a good dad. But without Christ, it won't be enough. He will always come up short. What are you working on to gain? You cannot gain the whole world. It's all a ruse. How could you hold it even if you got a hold of the whole thing? And how long could you keep it if you did get a hold of it? I mean, how long do you have? 70, 80 years on this earth? And you think you can get the whole world and hold on to it until you die? See, it's all a ruse. It's all a mirage. Now, how long until your life comes to an end? Until you will stop breathing? Until your heart stops beating? Then what? What comes next if your whole life was made up trying to get this whole world? You have lost your soul in the process. And there is nothing in this world that is worth your soul. 
Someone has well said that the first question to answer is heaven or hell. Which world is it for you? And then once that question has been answered, the next is heaven or earth. Which world is it for you? Which world are you building your life on? It's not a matter of saying, yes, I've been a failure, I've lived immoral, and now I'm going to go to church and become a moral person, a decent person. I'm going to become spiritual now. Jesus is communicating to us in the Gospels that it's, it's, simply a, it's, it's not simply a shift from one performance-based identity to another. No, he wants us to find a whole way, new way of life. We need to lose our old self, our old identity, and base our living on our new identity that's found in Jesus Christ and him alone. You can't build yourself on a successful career or your parents' approval or even romance and getting married. You must build yourself on what Christ has done on the cross and you live in light of that. Jesus went to the cross willingly and on that cross he lost his identity so that we can have one in him. You know, no one put it better than C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He writes, The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own hereditary and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. And your real self will not come out as long as you're looking for it on your own and in yourself. Your life will only emerge when you're looking for Jesus and following him. We, we die to self and live for Christ. You know, the proof is in the other gospel accounts when, when Peter hears this. Luke doesn't highlight this, but other gospel do. When, when Peter hears Jesus' response of him going to die and his destiny is headed to Jerusalem and he's going to, he's going to suffer, how does Peter respond in those other gospel accounts? He, he gets angry and he rebukes Jesus. Why? Because Peter has an agenda for his life, and he has an agenda for Jesus' life, and it's only a life of strength. It's not a life of suffering. And if your agenda for your life is just a successful end, then you're using Jesus as the means, and you really don't have Jesus. But if Jesus is your king, if he's in control, then you cannot make him a means to your end. You cannot come to a king negotiating. You lay your sword down before a king and you submit to a king. You don't come negotiating what to do with your life. You come saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. Wherever you send me, I will go. There is no place, no process that is off the table. Lord, I will follow you wherever you lead. This is what it means to follow Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. Have you done this? Are you thinking this way about the Christian life?
Friend, when someone gives himself utterly for you, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? How can you hold anything back from Jesus? See, taking up your cross means that God gets to choose where and how your life is going to go. You die to self-determination. You die to control over your own life. You die to using God as a means to further your agenda. You die to your plans and you live for Jesus. Jesus ends here in verses 26 and 27. He says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. How can we be ashamed of Christ? Well, when we're afraid to share the gospel, it's one way. When we allow the fear of man to overrun our fear of God. Let's see, when Jesus was calling his disciples to follow him, he was calling them into a position of shame from the world's standards. Following Christ is so much different than the world's system. If all that you want is respectability in this world, Christianity is not the option. It's not the way. If all you want is worldly power, Jesus won't bring that. If all you want is earthly riches, following God, laying down your life, won't bring that. Following Christ will bring us into glory. Luke says there in 27, I don't know, the whole lot of time is spent on this. He says those there were standing, saw the kingdom, he says. And uh, he says, uh, let's read it here. I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What does he mean there? Well, a few different options. Those standing there, those would see Jesus rising from the dead to conquer death. Or, or simply put, um, or, excuse me, simply put, the kingdom of God is the rule of God. So it could be that, that Jesus, when he, when he comes back to life, the resurrection, or the second one, and I, and I think it's more this second one, is a transfiguration that we're going to look at in two weeks. I'm not sure. Uh, I, you can go either way, but I lean towards that one, that seeing Jesus, the rule of God, and he'll bring three of these men with him up to see this. They will see and understand the kingdom of God. Well, I need to end here this morning. And as we end, coming after and following Jesus involves a daily decision. A daily decision to be ready, if need be, to go to death for him. Friend, every morning we need to say, good morning, Lord, where's my cross? Don't say that when you're looking at your spouse or your kids. Say it as we look at the word. As you look at your life, as you look at just what, what's on the schedule for the day. And realizing that every morning we wake up to, to, to new grace, it's from the Lord. But we, we, we come to a new day to die to self so that we can live for him. May one verse to meditate and, and to write down here and to think through this week every, every morning is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Think through that and meditate on that this week. Or Galatians 5.24 or 6.14. 
to think through these things and, and that we can properly live for Christ as we die to our own needs and wants. Well, let me close with this. One more quote from C.S. Lewis in that book. It was from Mere Christianity. And, and he ends the book with this quote here, this last paragraph. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long, long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. We look to Christ and we will find everything we need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can still listen to your word this morning, even though we're removed from the gathering, we're in, in our own homes. I pray that you would press upon our hearts the call of this text this morning in Luke, that we would be ready to serve wherever you take us. And God, I do pray that you would raise up more from our congregation to leave behind the comforts of this country and to look to serve you where your name is not known. And may we be as a church eager to send them out, supporting them in prayer and finances. But even more than that, God, maybe we are ready, all of us, to lay down our lives this week in your service. Whether that's at home or at work, may we deny ourselves and live for you. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.